Welcome back to another Bite Side. I am Seamus Byrne. And Nick, I'm just going to bring you straight in here because if there's one <laughs> thing, one message for the whole world right now, it is two words, very simple, don't panic. Don't panic indeed. Uh, I feel like I want to get my Kobo and just kind of scratch that on the back of it so that it feels like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> That's right. 42 years of Hitchhiker's Guide, the perfect year to give it that nod. Um, of course, started on radio before it then became the series novels. So, you know, all sorts of, I mean, right, it was multimedia before multimedia was a thing. Including a very, very difficult game, a famously difficult game that yes. I, oh boy, here we go. Uh, I once got locked in the school library and as a boarding student, that meant I was in there at like nine o'clock at night because I'd been on an Apple IIc trying to work out how to get that Babel fish in my ear. In your ear. <laughs> no one had noticed that the fat nerdy kid was in the computer room and when I came out realising it was significantly later than it was supposed to be, I'd been locked in the school library. I had to, I had to call the teacher's res on a number wow. I found on a, on a contact sheet and say, oh, miss, it's, it's Nick Healy. I'm locked in the library. <laughs> and I will remember the delighted gales of laughter from that teacher to my grave. <laughs> I did, I hopefully it didn't sound too much like that to throw you back into that it moment. Did, it really <laughs> did, but thank you. Yes, Douglas Adams. I, I had the joy of catching him when he was in Sydney years and years ago at the Sydney Town Hall. And he was an amazing speaker. Yeah, like I I always, it kind of just, it pains me that, you know, died far too young, uh, right at like the end of the 90s, really. I, yeah, I think because he was only in his 50s and, you know, I wish he'd gotten to see the positive part of what, you know, the whole smartphone era right there in the palm of our hands, that the Hitchhiker's Guide as a concept kind of did come to life. When I got my very first iPad, I did get a Don't Panic wallpaper <laughs> for it um, because, yeah, massive fan of, of the series. In fact, for my 42nd birthday, I actually was given a wonderful Don't Panic uh, birthday cake uh, and my wife sort of threw a, a mega surprise party for me, which was quite amazing at the time. But, yeah, brilliant. Um, and, yeah, it is just, I think that's really that amazing part of, you know, the fact that the world did become a lot of what he predicted, but thankfully he had a better sense of humour than the world today seemed to. And, look, go back and, of course, read all of the Hitchhiker's books, listen to whatever you can find at the radio plays, but don't forget to touch on Last Chance to See, which was his brilliant book about conservation yes. and extinction, and it remains an incredible read. Yeah, and there was a, a recent documentary, again, that kind of followed on from that, um, where Stephen Fry, who was a very good friend of Douglas Adams, went out with Mark Carverdine, who was the co-author of Last Chance to See, uh, and they went back to some of those places to sort of see how things had progressed. And, you know, for some things, it was really positive. For others, far from it. But um, <laughs> that's also on a lot of the streaming services out there as well. That is fantastic. Hey, Gaming. We've been talking a lot about it over the last few weeks because I've been going back. I just actually finished yesterday the fourth of the oh, um, Uncharted games. So that's all four back-to-back. -back. Fantastic. Highly recommend it. Yes, the fourth one is fairly self-indulgent, but by that point I feel like they'd earned it a little bit, so I was comfortable <laughs> yeah. with it. Nice. But we had some big news about, and you know, we've often heard rumours of an Uncharted uh, film in the works. This is a bit different. 
still Naughty Dog, but The Last of Us getting turned into a TV series. That's right. So, yeah, really sort of big news late last week, I think it was, um, where, yeah, the announcement was made that the original writer for the first game of The Last of Us and the screenwriter, and I guess he was kind of the creative lead behind Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries, uh, Craig Mazin is his name, uh, that they are working on this project. I think the, I've forgotten the name of the original writer, but he will be in an executive producer role, I think. So not you sort of directly. Mm-hmm. Druckmann, the director, or? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yes. It- so, yeah. Um, he will be, um, yeah, he'll be involved, not, you know, they're not co-writing it or something like that, but that does, you know, for fans, I think it helps to suggest that there is that, you know, original steady hand involved to kind of make sure that it is being guided towards, uh, I guess, representing the concept of the world and the original sort of feeling of it all as closely as possible. But, I'm actually a massive fan of Craig Mazin in that he is a co-host of the Script Notes podcast, which is all about screenwriting. He, ah. they, he and John August, um, both, you know, very, very high quality screenwriters in Hollywood have been involved for decades. Um, do this sort of, you know, purely for the love of the industry, really. They do a weekly podcast all about screenwriting. Um, through that, I kind of personally have a lot of confidence in that one of the big things that comes up a lot for them is they love video games. They talk about game writing a lot, um, like obviously not as much as screenwriting, but it comes up a lot that, you know, that they have a really clear understanding of sort of the love of games, the different kinds of things about video games, all that sort of stuff. So I kind of, I do have a bit of extra confidence that someone like that is involved. Hilariously, he used to write Hangover sequels and all sorts of very low-rated things, but I remember someone once linked to, I think it's his Metacritic uh, profile, which pointed to all his kind of very low-rated things and then Chernobyl being this, like, 98, (laughs) (laughs) saying, one day you too might find that thing that breaks through. Um, But look, yeah, just as a starting point, wanted to touch on that idea that I think... I am very confident and in a lot of ways actually feel like that as far as people have always been wishing for a really good game to screen or to game to screen as if games aren't on screens, game to uh, filmed media uh, sort of translation. Uh, I have a lot of confidence that this might be one of the better ones we ever see. But of course, it begs the other question, which is, why do we feel the need to do this? Well, why do we? Uh, actually, it begs a better question. You say one of the better ones. Has there been <laughs> a good one? Now, a couple of years ago, I ran a panel at PAX. It was, um, uh, and again, I know we uh, we tend to keep a clean mouth, uh, but the actual name of the panel was um, Why Good Games Make Shitty Movies. And <laughs> yeah. I went through and looked at some of the, the truly, truly awful adaptations, and there's been a lot of them. But what we discussed was maybe there hasn't been a good one at all. Now, I would suggest Silent Hill, but I can suggest that because I've never played a Silent Hill game and I actually (laughs) quite enjoyed the movie. So clearly, if you know Silent Hill, you'd probably have a wildly different opinion. Is there one that stands out for you? Can you think of it just really quickly? Top of your head, a great movie based on a game. No, right. I really really can't. But like the thing that always strikes me, though, is I can't think of 
something that wasn't just ham-fistedly licensed for the sake of trying to just make some money. You know, that everything that leaps to my mind is just like the Street Fighters and the horror. Well, you know what? Like, couple. I mean, <laughs> right? What is great? Because some of those Resident Evil movies were really, really fun. Yeah, look, all of them are fun. Were they great? No. <laughs> no, they're not great. They're not great. They're not even particularly good. They are yeah. fun. And I do enjoy them. And I saw far too many of them in the cinema. That is an embarrassing yes. admission to make. Um, and look, you know, you could argue that Detective Pikachu is actually quite fun and quite clever. Um, I don't know. I heard that some people enjoyed the Sonic movie. Yeah, I have to say, my kids haven't even asked to go and see it. <laughs> But then Sonic is quite a throwback when it comes to their generation. Yeah, I really didn't know who they were making that film for. Look, beside the point, the question I've always got is why do they need to be adapted? They are already an on-screen visual media. Yeah. And and the, uh, the sheer act of adapting them takes away the thing that makes them unique, and that's the interactivity. So we're actually removing something, in my view, from the artwork to turn it into a lesser artwork. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's funny. Look, I did pull up a page, and I'm skimming past some things <laughs> that in recent years have tried so much harder, right? Particularly, I think Ubisoft has tried Assassin's Creed. That was terrible. With Fassbender. That was a terrible Marianne movie. And Cotillard and Jeremy Irons and Brendan. Like, it had a real cast lineup. Um, but, like, the main thing I'm looking at is, you know, and like Tomb Raider. Like, there's all these kinds of different things because again, all the kind of real schlocky stuff was what leapt to mind first. And now kind of skimming back through it, it's like there have been some attempts to sort of elevate it. Warcraft, and it wasn't good. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's definitely been a lot of effort to do it. Um, Prince of Persia, <laughs> another one where they got, yeah, let's get a good cast. Um, but you know, if you don't get it right, you don't get it right. I forgot but that existed. Look, look I Rampage. Did... Rampage was actually quite good. <laughs> Okay. Only in the sense that it has a fifty-one percent no. on Rotten. Tomatoes. No, I actually love Rampage, and I think you may have found that one. I will give you Rampage because it did everything that you wanted to from the game, and also yep. had the Rock um, as a primatologist. And how can you not love that? <laughs> yes. um, uh, I believe but- one of the AV Club reviews called it a. Um, uh, an apeshit movie for a batshit world. And I really, really <laughs> appreciated that. Look, I had to interview Justin Kurtzel, the Aussie director who did um, the uh, Assassin's Creed movie. Oh, yeah. Now, what I couldn't believe is they made us like commit. We couldn't interview him if we hadn't already been to a screening of the movie. And after walking out, I was like, why would anyone <laughs> have wanted us to see that before doing the interview? Oh, bless. And I've been really proud of it. It was a five minute interview, and they were like, See, you've got five more minutes. And I'm like, Oh, I'm done. We're, we're good here. Thanks very much. <laughs> Pull a bag of lollies out of your pocket and just offer him one. <laughs> I just, I got out of there. It was just, it was terrible. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Justin. I didn't, I didn't but, say that to your face. I apologize. I mean, look, definitely when I think about Detective Pikachu, looking at Rampage as well, these are movies where you think, it's it's inspired by a universe. Yeah. It is not saying let's replicate the things that happened in this game. And I think your point is 100% valid as well, right? In that we, I think the search is for something, and this is partly where maybe games have a problem on their side, is where are 
the you know three hour beautiful game experiences that you can go you can sit down you can enjoy it for three hours it's not too hard in the sense that it doesn't stop you from just playing it but that in the end, you kind of know that in three hours I'm going to see the end of this story and it's going to have been a pleasurable experience in the way that a movie can give you that sort of momentum that games quite often, like if you are not a real game player on a regular basis, there are a lot of games where you just hit a point where you get stuck, you're not necessarily even sure what the game wants you to do next, or you just keep kind of hitting that same wall and, right, like how many old, when QuickTime events were a big thing, and I think QuickTime events were a really big part of trying to feed us a more cinematic game experience, but the number of times when there's that one bit where you just can't quite get the timing right, and so you end up there for 45 minutes playing the same 30 seconds over and over trying to get past that moment, but that that is not in itself as much fun as watching Run, Roller, Run, Roller, Run, which is all about having to play through the same moment again and again and again in a movie format. Look, that is really interesting because, you know, would Star Wars be successful if we had to watch Luke crash into the side of the um, Death Star over and over and over again before <laughs> getting it right? Probably now and not. then accidentally just pulling straight up. Whoops, sorry. Oh, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> It wouldn't be. Hang on. So, wow. Okay, there was a lot to unpack in that, a real lot to unpack. Firstly, <laughs> I think there are a lot of great short-form gaming experiences. I think of Gone Home, I think of Tacoma, I think of Florence. I think they are out there, but they are not publicised in the way that movies are and we've, yeah. you know, or AAA gaming. So there is always a bit of an issue about finding those outside mm. of world amount, word amounts. But obviously I think the, the indie scene has proven that short form gaming can be absolutely fantastic. Highly recommend it. And as someone who's very busy, I really, really enjoy it. We are talking movies though. And it should be noted that The Last of Us is going to be a TV series in the age of peak TV. And will that bring something different to the table? Yeah. Because like I, I know I wrote this down saying it's a TV series. I'm, I, I didn't 100. percent oh. I think validate if that was the full plan or not. So I was pretty. Just, I was pretty sure it was. Yeah, I like. I think it is. I just off the top of my head, yes, TV series. That's fine. I just wanted to double check because I'm like, <laughs> don't make totally me wrong. And it's actually going to be a movie. Of course, it shouldn't be a movie these days. Um, look, this is a really good point, isn't it? Because I think it's done the same thing. For books that it might now do, again, if they give it that approach that the Rampages and the Detective Pikachus have taken where it is about telling stories in the world. It is not necessarily about saying we are recreating the exact events of this particular game. But even having said that, right, there there is potential there for a game like The Last of Us to give us those kind of story beats that took place in that first game uh, as part of telling a you know a serialized version of that story, oh, and I would really enjoy that. I quite enjoyed serialized gaming. Um, Telltale did some amazing work yeah. with that, some really amazing work, um, and very sad to see that they will no longer be doing that. But I, for a little while there, thought that might actually be a really good, not future of gaming, but um, a, a genre that would take off. The idea of chapters of gaming that you could pace out and really enjoy. 
or wait till it was all done and binge the game if that's how you felt like doing it. Um, but it works in that narrative cycle and, and maybe that's not what we're looking for in gaming. I don't know anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, that, that is just such a big issue right now with those kinds of things. I'm like, what, you know, like I'm just sort of stumbling at myself thinking about Telltale here because they did do some stuff that was so special and exactly as you say, that sort of timed release so that you could always create those kinds of cliffhanger moments and make people excited for that next few hours of of the entertainment that was going to be coming to them. Um, but at the same time, like, and it's funny because Walking Dead is one of those, right? And it's like Walking Dead, it's a, it's a comic that became a TV series that became a Telltale game series. There's almost that sort of analogy there of, you know, in The Last of Us, I had lots of sort of thoughts in my mind on the success of Walking Dead as a TV series um, being a comic translation, feeling like that there's a lot of sort of that, you know, it's, I mean, is Last of Us technically zombie horror or is it... (laughs) I mean, look, it, look, is it floral horror? I, I would argue the toss on that one. I'm pretty sure we can just call it zombie horror. Yeah. But you're right. There's a lot we can take from those two. Huge fan of the comics. I loved the comics. I could never get into the TV series, perhaps because of how much I had enjoyed those comics. The game, because it told a different story, an adjunct story, a separate story, I loved. I loved all of them. Mm. And maybe that's what we want here. I don't know if I want to see Joel and Ellie's story just told in a different way, but another story about that world I would be fascinated by. Yeah. Look, I'm I'm definitely excited to see what comes out of this. I do feel like, right, whichever way it goes, it's definitely an interesting proof point for what comes next because, I mean, again, we always felt like nobody had done great translations of fantasy fiction for film until Peter Jackson made Lord of the Rings. And it was partly because of his absolute devotion to the source material and his clarity that what he was making was an historic epic. He wasn't making a fantasy movie. It just happened to be that this historic epic had some elements to it that ultimately are fantasy you know but it was that approach that kind of made the difference so that's where i think you know we might be about to see the right step forward the other thing that leaps to my mind on this discussion is thinking about what happened with bandersnatch right a lot of gamers kind of poo-pooed it because it was too simple as a game experience but i've also seen the fact that you know when we think about um you know minecraft story mode uh, which was a full game, uh, that there was actually, and a lot, I think a lot of people haven't realised that there was a Netflix version made of Minecraft Story Mode where you could choose options with the remote in a very, you know, and in fact that was part of what then led to Bandersnatch being created later hmm. was the experimentation sort of through this direct translation of a game to a more just interactive TV experience um, and then offering those tools to Charlie Brooker and friends. So there's, I think there's definitely so much kind of potential in this crossover. And, you know, one part of me almost, if they, I mean, they're making it for, for HBO, but there'd be a really interesting thing that could happen. Imagine if someone took like The Last of Us as a property 
and then made it as a Netflix TV series, but that maybe it's only once or twice in the episode <laughs> you get thrown this curveball where you have to make a choice. That'd okay. be kind of interesting. Look, they are not going to do that, but I would I love it if they did, <laughs> but they are not going to do that. And I'm just going to go back, and I don't want to get caught on this, but we hadn't had a good fantasy epic. I'm sorry, John Milius is very, very angry at you because Conan was great and true to the source material. You're right. Conan was very, very good. It wasn't great in the way that a true epic of Lord of the Rings had been told. I mean, a big, big help with Conan, right? A wonderful help with Conan was the fact that they didn't need much in the way of costuming and they could just go out and shoot it in a desert. Uh, look, a weird side note for that HBO connection, John Millius, who directed the original Conan, co-creator Rome, which I think is one of the great HBO wow. series. Wow. Right? And I bet he wouldn't have gotten the budget for Rome if Lord of the Rings hadn't existed. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm just going to let you speculate wildly on that. We're going to just have to wait and see what happens with The Last of Us. And I'm excited to wait carefully. <laughs> let's wait carefully on this one. And if you've got any opinions on it, you can do whatever else has done and take it to Twitter. Maybe do it quickly because Twitter could be seeing some changes very, very soon. I was a bit stunned to read a news story uh, that, for me, blindsided me. And it's probably because I'm not mired down in this the way I was. Um, it's on the verge, is what I read it on, saying that Jack Dorsey will remain Twitter's CEO I didn't even know there was a chance he would be going, but apparently it was really close. They've actually done a deal, Twitter, uh, with one of their big investments, an activist investment firm that has been trying for two weeks now to push Dorsey out. They want to completely overhaul Twitter and they want Dorsey gone to make it happen. There's been a lot of talk for many years about what Twitter is doing now, whether it has lost its way, what its contribution has been to society, to politics, whether that's been good, whether that's been bad. And a lot of that focus has been pushed on Jack Dorsey and whether he is leading it in the right way. I hadn't realised it had hit a point where investors were like, maybe he's got to go. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny. I think you're right. We so often we get caught up, at least within sort of, tech media, tech press side of it, who, those of us who aren't following the business questions, yeah. right? We are looking at the personality that is Jack Dorsey. We're looking at whether or not they are delivering the things end users are desperately asking for. Here's a situation where it's the investors demanding more on the business side to keep driving the business forward in, you know, the best way possible. Um, and the best way possible for the business stakeholders, whether or not that meets the requirements of what <laughs> you know, those of us uh, who use the product on a daily basis care about. But I think there is no question that as a leader, Jack Dorsey has definitely struggled to convince either side of that equation that he is a firm hand driving that place forward, you know, particularly off the back of, you know, the more of the more of his kind of lifestyle elements that come out around him being a very, you know, sort of avant-garde isn't necessarily the right word, but, you know, very um, sort of, I'm just going to sort of test things out and think about things in really kind of airy-fairy ways. That's a terrible word to use, but like, yeah, like when he went and did the visit to Africa and then sort of talks to people there 
in really non-committal big picture ways. I think that's the thing that sort of has always had had his problem and that neither he has neither made consumers of the product happy and he, nor the business investors because he just keeps trying to answer in sort of platitudes that say, oh, yeah, we're thinking about that a lot, but, you know, we don't want to move too quickly and we don't want to this, that, the other. And everybody ends up feeling like they want something to change. Look, it needs to change. It has to change. But what is that change going to look like? What is it going to be after that change? These are things we can't answer at the moment, and I don't see Jack Dorsey answering them. Now, you know, he is a bit of a... Well, he's a non-personality in many, many ways, not him as an individual, but we don't see him attracting the headlines of, uh, say, Elon Musk. Um, and yeah. I think that's a good thing. I would prefer invisible Jack Dorsey to I've strapped two flamethrowers to my Cybertruck and now I'm driving down the middle of Hollywood, bloody Elon Musk. Yeah. Um, I'd really prefer that. But at some point, Twitter has to actually acknowledge the problems it has, the big ones. It has to acknowledge that as a platform, it has probably had one of the biggest impacts on the world around us of, of any of those movements outside of Facebook. Um, and impacts we never could have seen coming back in 2008 or whenever it was when someone tweeted setting up my Twitter profile now. Like we just, we never <laughs> saw what this was going to be like. Not being prepared for it is no excuse to not reacting to it. And we've not seen any good reaction. Yeah. And I mean, even thinking about Mark Zuckerberg, right? The other sort of big prominent technology leader, he is, he is quite terrible in his own way when it comes to the public facing statements. But all of the rumblings that come out of that company speak to him being much more of a like, iron fist kind of tyrant behind the scenes who really like really has a firm grasp on the business of that company selling ads and doing everything it can to make money and in that sort of context it's like yeah facebook has so many issues so many issues but there's a clarity i think for the investors that it is being driven in a way that is going to make them money and that for consumers there is a big issue on Facebook where it's simply the case of going, where else are you going to go? And, <laughs> you know, and like particularly in the family context, it's that whole issue where it's like, well, there's now just a kind of a, all these are digitally rusted on to using Facebook in a way that means, well, you know, people like me, I'm like, well, I've, I've uninstalled it from my phone, but I still have Messenger because that's where I know I can get to people. It's like, it is kind of this perfect contact list address book these days in a way that means they can confidently sit there and going until we see those numbers shifting you know they're trying to they know they have problems long term with keeping their audience involved but no investor is complaining about how that company is being driven and that's where it's like for us as users of twitter and lovers of twitter we wish it was something different but they also then have the problem on the other side telling them this needs to change. I don't know that necessarily what it changes into Not is ever going to line up either, of course. Like either we're going to become more unhappy as users or the investors are 
going to become more unhappy if, you know, they do all the things that stop them. Like, you know, they, they changed their ad policies so much better than Facebook did when it came to elections. That is probably losing them money. And then that clearly hits the investor side of things to say, well, what the hell are we doing to overcome that decision? I I would just say it's 2020. We're always going to end up more unhappy at some point. There's no good decision to be made about anything this year in particular. (laughs) Not this year. And the one change I want to see, I'll give a shout out to Christian McRae, who on Twitter said that the one thing he desperately wants is the ability to favourite favourites and then favourite the favourite of favourites until it's all the way down. Just nothing but favourites of favourites. I'm on board. I love it. Yeah, let's just oh, that do would it. be great. Let's just I mean, do it. In fact, and then it becomes yo. Isn't there a, a social network where all you do is ping each other with yo messages? Wait, so, is that really, a joke from Silicon Valley, or is that real? I can't remember anymore. No, there there is one of those that is real. Oh my god, are you serious? <laughs> All right, uh, this is going to upset me too much. Let's talk about a happier topic. Let's talk yes. about coronavirus and COVID nineteen. <laughs> Significantly oh, what happier a, what than What a Twitter. way to raise the tone, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, i got to say, in my day job, I, I am stunned at how much conversations around coronavirus have started to well, dominate what I do on, on the show in the morning. You know, I, I think for a long time there, being a regional Aussie um, and doing a kind of very generic breakfast show, a bit cruel on myself there, not generic, but, you know, a, a, yeah. a kind of standard breakfast show that hits a wide variety of topics. I didn't think I'd be talking about coronavirus outside of just a general interest. But today, um, Tuesday, we saw a, a huge announcement from Qantas. They're going to be dropping their capacity by a whole quarter for the next six months because coronavirus has impacted travel so much. Yeah. I've been talking to agronomists about the impact it's going to have on the primary production sector, sector in my area, what it's going to mean for farmers who have been smashed on the back of the, the drought now to have this impact them in peripheral ways, it's all out there. It's pervading everything. How the hell do we find it? And what do we do about it? And can technology do it? Well, look, yeah, this is the nice kind of story in a sense of where people are trying to help as much as they can um, is that this classic project that's been around now for quite a few years, I don't think it's quite 20 years, but it's getting towards it, folding at home, And that is one of these distributed computing tools where everybody in the world can just say, you know what, I'm going to install it on my computer. And when it almost works like a screensaver um, or, you know, just when your computer is idle, it can identify, I can tell you're not using your CPU right now. I'm just going to grab some CPU cycles and do something helpful for the world. And in this case, uh, that project makes itself available to lots of different scientific research opportunities, and particularly around chemistry, um, cancer research, huh. all those sorts of biosciences. And yeah, as part of that project, they have now uh, created one of the sort of the folding projects is looking to hunt for uh, candidates in ways to target the particular proteins that are involved with you know the COVID. 19 virus um so you know in the past again it's it's focused a lot on cancer but really the whole thing is about high level computation to sort of like i don't even know how you kind of specific specifically talk about it but it's like this really low level biological work on folding proteins which is like really complicated stuff but it's simulating lots of different ways in which 
um, the proteins inside sort of cellular structures can be manipulated uh, so that then you can work out ways that you can attack it. You can get something to kind of stick to it or grab it. Um, all those kinds of sort of questions. So yeah, for, for this particular question around coronavirus, they're trying to help researchers to find ways to attack the, the virus. And then that information is publicly disseminated to everybody who's researching it. So it's not attached to one particular researcher. It's available to everybody to try to help feed into that pool of useful data. Now that is actually fantastic. And, and I'm not super familiar with folding at home, but I am guessing it came out of that CT at home research. So, yeah, so SETI at Home back in 1999, that was sort of the first ever of these sorts of ideas. And that was created by sort of some of the radio astronomers who were working for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI. Uh, and they sort of realized that they were pulling in so much data and they didn't have enough computing power to deal with it. They needed to just analyze it in supercomputers uh, in order to, you know, then work out where are the kind of signals that we consider candidate signals to then sort of investigate more closely. Um, so they set up this distributed project, which really did run as a screensaver um, back at that first time, 1999. And it would pull down just a chunk of the data and then your computer would sort of spend, I mean, back then it could have been as much as, you know, a day trying to churn through that one bit of a bit of data and then it would send it back up to the internet and then would pull down another one. Very, um, very proudly had that installed on my computer at work when I worked for Excite at home because I just liked the uh, the yeah. symbolism of uh, having <laughs> yeah. CD at home with Excite at home. I loved it. Yeah, and so look, the SETI project just closed down about a, a week or two ago because we found they basically them. we found them. Yes. Is that why? Is we found aliens? Is that why we had to um, shut it down? Sadly, not. Yeah. I mean, that would be the best way if they announced it was closing down. Oh, and by the way, there's this guy. <laughs> we've interpreted this signal. <laughs> and they said, we'll be there uh, at noon on Saturday morning. <laughs> noon on Saturday morning. Oh. I'm not very good at improv apps. <laughs> so I did not know the search for extraterrestrial intelligence had shut down. Yeah. So, you know, for them, it was a really big deal um, that they basically said that they've got now a backlog of analyzed data to finish sifting through. Oh, oh, that so, is good news. Exactly. It's really kind of lovely that they're like, yeah, it's not that the work is done, but it is that going, you know what, you've helped us out so much that we've got catching up to do. That's oh, made me really happy. I always thought this was a really sad story for a bit there. I was like, this no. was meant to be our happy one, Seamus Burn. Yeah. This is so that was okay. really good. And so folding at home, I think its first really big moment in the spotlight was it was available on PlayStation 3. It was. Yeah. Yes. And for a while... That distributed network of PlayStation 3s was, I don't know if it was the number one in the world, but it was certainly in the top handful of supercomputers in the world in terms of raw computing power, which was kind of awesome that that collective effort could actually be sort of looked at and they're going, okay, how much processing does that actually mean we now have access to? Oh, look at that. We are now one of the biggest supercomputers in the world. Um, so that kind of showed the potential of that sort of thing and just how powerful that really was. Um, but yeah, this has evolved over the years since then and you can install it on any computer. And yeah, right now, one of the big things that it has pointed that potential computing power at 
is helping with coronavirus. So, yeah, really cool news. I don't think we have an answer for this easily, but I'm, I'm trying to work out if that's a good carbon footprint because those computers would probably be working or a bad one because it is requiring additional energy drain. I'm going to try and look into this and see what it actually means. Yeah. Yeah, look, it is a really good point because you think, okay, well, if those, right, because computers have gotten better at idle cycles. They sure so have. So they don't use as much power when they're, yeah, because certainly. No improvement point, to turning on, that's for sure. But they've yeah. got very good at idle cycles. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, yeah, that's a good point. Don't bring a downer to it. It's going to help save the world. All right. Stop. Fingers crossed. It's all on. It's all Especially good. Especially if your house is on solar power. Yeah, please don't. Go, go and invest in solar power. We're all going to need it. Don't don't stockpile toilet, toilet paper. Stockpile solar panels instead. Yeah. That's much better <laughs> for the end of the world. Uh, Seamus, just to finish off, I while we are talking about coronavirus, I was really entertained to see that the movie Contagion was back in the news. Uh, did you see any of these news stories doing the rounds? Um, I didn't know why we were talking about it. I didn't know why we were talking about BitTorrent. Turns out people really, 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 really want to watch Steven Soderbergh's film from about nine years ago now, Contagion, except it's not streaming anywhere, anywhere at all. It's one of those weird films that has not appeared on you know, Amazon or any of the other streaming services. That really blows my mind. It does blow my mind too because it's Soderbergh. He, he's just a great thing. I exactly. didn't particularly enjoy the film, but I can see why people would want to watch it. So apparently we have seen a bit of a spike in rentals on iTunes, but more importantly, we have seen a huge spike in torrent downloads. So The Verge once again got together with Torrent Freak and started examining the data. And what they've seen is big spikes in movie downloads between January 1 to March 4, all coinciding with coronavirus news. I mean, it, uh, it's fine. I was just deciding, you know what, I'm going to look up Soderbergh's Twitter <laughs> just to see if he's had anything to say about it. Uh, and no, he hasn't tweeted since January. Wow. Well, um, but I'm mind. expecting any day now he's going to tweet a link to a BitTorrent or something because he seems like that kind of guy. This one is just fascinating me. So they saw a couple of hundred downloads of um, Contagion just kind of prior to January 24. January 25, when news started to come, that jumped up to 1,500 downloads. And then when the news began circulating that coronavirus, COVID-19, had touched down in the U.S., 18,000 downloads. So they can spike <laughs> it based on how that info is coming out. Wow. Now, is this a good thing? Does this mean that people are trying to watch Contagion because they remembered it and, I don't know, it was making them think about it? Or are they actually trying to get some information out of it, which is very terrifying? Yeah. Let's really, really, really <laughs> hope that people aren't trying to use this as an information-gathering exercise. Please don't. Um. I mean, it, it parallels really well with the fact that games like Plague Inc., the uh, phone <laughs> yes, game, yes, has also spiked in attention. Plague Inc. is, as opposed to Pandemic, the cooperative board game where you try to stop a virus from spreading around the world. Plague Inc. Uh, is the game where you are the virus uh, and you are trying to destroy everything. It's, it's um, brutal, but it's also, oh, I'm going to say, it's heaps of fun. It is. And look, you know, I think it also helps to point out that humans can be very good at dealing with this stuff when they try properly to do so. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But, um, yeah, it, I think it just parallels that idea that people have probably, you know, it's like that old chit-chat sort of situation where people are talking about stuff and then they're thinking about 
virus games and virus movies. And then next thing you know, they're checking to see, can we get Contagion? Is it on Netflix? Oh, oh, that's really weird. It's not on Netflix. Where else is it? Oh, oh, I don't have to pay for it. No, of course not. That'd be a disaster. <laughs> I'm only mildly interested. I'm not <laughs> pay for it interested. Um, so, oh my God, it is, it's a fascinating situation that we get ourselves into with, uh, 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 you know, one part of me wonders, uh, it, it, in the end, will they be able to look at um, the viral distribution of <laughs> Contagion, the movie, um, related to the hotspots of sort of activity of the virus around the world? That, that's like an academic research paper in five years' time. I cannot wait to read that if we're here in five years. Look, if you are looking for genuine information, just a huge recommendation for another podcast briefly, Science Versus, um, which comes out of New York. Now, uh, Wendy Zuckerman, she's an ex-ABC employee. I think um, I appeared on um, uh, Download the Show a couple of times with her. You might have met her as well, yeah, Seamus. Yep. She's She's great. amazing. They, late last year, um, way before any of the coronavirus scare, actually did an incredible episode looking at an epidemic and how it might That's spread. Right. And it's a great listen. Grab it. It's probably more current than ever. I would be very shocked to, know, to learn uh, that there hadn't been a huge spike in downloads on that, but <laughs> yeah. heartily, heartily recommend it. Yeah, look, I will make sure and find that and, and link it up in the show notes because that was a really, really great episode of that show. Please and the do. show in general is fantastic. Yeah, it is. It's really, really good. Uh, shall we leave it there, Seamus? Yes. Look, thank you, Nick, again. Um, please remind everybody where they can track you down. Find me on Twitter. I am at Dr. Nick. That is D-R underscore N-I-C. Or just, I'm on Facebook. Just find my name, Nick Healy. And what should they dial up on the ABC app to tune into your breakfast dulcet tones? Well, there we go. If you want to find out everything that's happening right around the Western Plains region of New South Wales, uh, ABC Western Plains. Yay. <laughs> and I'm at Seamus on Twitter. Um, there's a whole bunch of other podcasts that you can find at biteside.com. Uh, and then there's at Biteside. I'm starting to do a lot more curation across the social feeds. So I encourage everybody to... Um, follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Also, just slash Biteside on Facebook and at The Biteside on Instagram. But yeah, really putting extra effort into finding lots of cool links uh, every day of the week. And then that feeds into the newsletter that goes out every Friday. And of course, if you have questions, send them to ask at Biteside.com. And Nick, again, great to see you. Well, not quite, but great to speak to you. Great to hear your voice <laughs> in interactive format. <laughs> we'll see you all next time. See hear you all next time. <laughs> sure. no, you'll hear us next time. <laughs> this is going so well. Bye.